Good morning and welcome to the Sunday Money Show. I'm Ian Grant. Financial opinions over the course of this hour, recommendations expressed in this show, are solely those of the commentator and not necessarily those of Hollis Wealth, Newstalk 1010, or Bell Media. Hollis Wealth is a division of Industrial Alliance Securities, Inc., a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. Alan Small Financial Group is a personal trade name of Alan Small, and uh, you're asked to please consult your investment advisor for financial advice. Alan Small, good morning. Welcome in. Good morning. It's really starting to feel like spring out there. I, I don't want to say summer yet, because I do that every year, and I get whammed by another snowstorm. But, <laughs> Especially you know, in April. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? We had our little wake-up surprise last Sunday, but this this weekend, beautiful, and it, you can kind of feel that, that summer maybe on the horizon, which is kind of a way I'm asking about. I get it. The business you're in is 24-7, 365, da-da-da-da. But are there different cycles based on, I imagine people have got to be in a more positive, more excited mood in, you know, the spring, summertime. Do you see a difference or is it really just ones and zeros? Yeah, it's, it's funny you ask that question. Yeah, you do see a difference, but not so much necessarily uh, that good feeling. I think you, you, one of the reasons why the markets tend to do so well at the end of the year, November, December, is part of that good feeling and cheer. You have the U.S. Thanksgiving, you have uh, Christmas, obviously, New Year's, and it's no, I don't think it's a surprise that the, the best months of the year for the markets tend to be, no, I believe, are November and December. I think the S&P 500, the top three months are actually November, December, and actually April. Wow. Uh, so wow. here we go. So I think the Dow Jones, uh, the best month of the year is April. April. So uh, I'm not sure what the TSX, I got to look that one up. But overall, I know the US, uh, US markets do well at the end of the year because of that positive feeling. But this time of year, it's funny. I think the markets, uh, they kind of start to die down a little bit as we get into June, July, and August. People go off to their cottages and away for the summer. They figure out how to spend their money, maybe not so much invest their money. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the job, I guess my job never stops, but maybe a few less calls that time of year than, than other times. Let me ask you, about expectations, because last show we did, we did a real neat, you know, overview of how the industry works. One of the areas that we may have, we should probably spend a little more time on, though, was people's expectations, because, you know, you and I were talking, and last year, markets were down double digits here in Canada, six to seven percent of the U.S. It was the first negative year in a while. For someone who is not immersed in, you know, in the world of finance, though, and someone who may be looking at the last 10 years and then walking into your office, do you find that people have a real understanding of what to expect? Or are they still, you know, writing high on the latest newspaper they picked up, which could have one of a million different opinions in it? I, and, and great point. I, you know, taking a step back before I answer that question, I think expectations is probably the number one thing that I believe investment advisors like myself myself, people that manage or help people manage their money should have in mind people's expectations. It's when expectations are different between the investment advisor and the investor. I think that's when things kind of go awry. So yeah, you know, here we are over the last 10 years, we've seen the markets go pretty much in a, in a straight line higher with the exception of maybe a, a crisis here, or a crisis there. One mm -hmm. that comes to mind was 2011, the Greece crisis. We didn't know if Greece would ever pay their bills and et cetera. But with that exception, you know, pretty much since the recession in 08, uh, 09, March was the bottom. We've gone pretty much straight up. So when I meet a new investor, it comes into my office and they look and they talk to me and they say, listen, Alan, last year I lost money. And they're looking at me like, 
I should be surprised. And, <laughs> and, and it's interesting because they don't know the Toronto stock market lost almost 12% last year. They don't know the U.S. markets were down around 7% last year. So no wonder, yes, am I surprised that an investor may have lost money last year, one of the few times? No, not at all. But it's the question of how much did they lose? If the mm-hmm. market lost, let's say, 12, did they lose 15 or did they lose 4 or 5? When the market was down in the last quarter of last year, 20%, you know, what did they do? Did they lose 20% or did they lose 5 or 6? And so I think it's the job of the investment advisor to manage that expectation. People should have realistic expectations of what their investments should and, and will do for them over time. And then you know what did that investment advisor what did your investment advisor do during at the end of last year when the market hit rock bottom december the 24th what was their strategy what you know what were they doing I was playing a little more defense at that time, mm. and as of, I think, January 3rd, 4th, when I saw the latest employment data, that's when I flipped the switch and became more aggressive, more, I shouldn't say aggressive, but more growth-oriented versus more defensive-oriented. And so, I think you need a strategy as an investor, as an advisor. You need to have a strategy. You need to know when to play defense and when to play offense. Later in this hour, we're going to talk about uh, in-depth more about the Allen Small difference, but just, it brings me to a fairly logical point, which is one of the things you pride yourself in, which is communication, which is, you know, talking to your clients a lot more than one or two times a year. Because it sounds to me like, you know, if you mix expectations with communication, you tend to have a lot happier relationships. Absolutely. And and during those times last year, the last quarter of last year, often I would send out a, a general email to all my clients just talking about where the markets are at and where my head is at. And I think, you know, investors need that. All they need is to have some reassurance to know where the person who's managing their money or helping them manage their money, you know, what they're thinking, how are they thinking, mm-hmm. what, you know, what do they expect in the next two, three, six months down the road? Should they be panicking? Should they sell everything? You know, usually the answer is no, or often the answer is no. But, you know, they want to know what they should be doing and, and how should they be thinking. And really, they're just looking for some guidance and reassurance that the world's not coming to an end uh, sometime soon. And I think I think that's a reasonable expectation. I mean, whether I'm dealing with a construction worker, whether I'm dealing with a lawyer, whether I'm dealing with, you know, my, my my son's school teacher, that communication, nobody likes to get the report card at the end of the semester and go, what happened? Why wasn't I told earlier about this? Why wasn't I given a chance to, you know, react to this in one way or the other? Investors are exactly the same way. They need that communication. They may not know that they need it until they see the report, which is why your way of making sure that you're constantly in communication with them makes so much more sense. And that communication could, could help an investor or at least prevent them for from making a big mistake. I, I met a new a new investor recently and and you know and, and their ideas, you know, at the at the end of last year when, when they saw the market falling close to twenty two percent in the US and, and, and Toronto markets are around there as well, hmm. they sold everything. They got out of the market and in hindsight looking back to get out of the market last December when the market was pretty much at the bottom, yeah. obviously that was a big mistake. And perhaps if their advisor, you know, was in contact with them more often to tell them that yes, things are difficult, but this is a pathway out of what's happening or this is what we need to 
to do today to prepare for when the markets turn around. I think it could have prevented this person and probably many others who may have sold at that time as well from making a mistake, which is to sell on emotion. Those that were getting nervous at that time, you know, all they kept hearing was there's a recession on the horizon, there was a recession on the horizon, and we're still hearing that till this day, actually. Sure, yeah. But, you know, you have to really block out the noise, focus on the fundamentals, focus on what's really happening underneath the surface. You know, that the last three months of the year was basically talking, you know, the markets went down on two reasons, and Fed raising interest rates into a weaker market and Chinese-U.S. trade talks. Those are the two things that brought down this market. And mm-hmm. coincidentally, you know, those are two of the things that brought up this market in the first three months of this year. So you really have to be careful and, you know, you want to be in contact. At least I like to be in contact with my clients on a regular basis. So with a decline, though, roughly 20% of the end of 2018, is it still reasonable then for investors to make money out there? Absolutely. The saying buy low, sell high is, you know, is, is something we all know. Uh, and if you can practice that and do it, uh, it, it's fantastic. When you have an opportunity to buy into the markets in general or a specific investment that may be down 20, 30, there were some stocks, for example, uh, some of the darlings of the tech industry that we've talked about on the show before, like a Facebook, it fell like 40%. Yes, yes. Amazon was down 30%. You know, you could go right across across the board, all your tech favorites that you always wanted to buy but could never because they were so expensive, (laughs) they were all on sale between 25 and 40% off. Bank stocks were down. Really, the sell-off was right across the board. I think you had at one point two-thirds of all stocks on the S&P 500 trading at a price over 20% below their highs. And so... What does that mean for a guy like me? Wow, that's just like a fire sale. And I was excited as can be. And getting back to expectations, it's funny. I have clients recently say to me, Alan, I just gave you money over the RSP season. You haven't put it to work yet. What's going on? And my response to them is, yeah, have you seen the market? It's back at all-time highs. How It's very difficult to find things to buy when the market is all-time highs, at all-time highs. Yet, when it was at the lows in December, I couldn't find one person to give me money. So again, perception, the perception is buy when things are good. No, you want to buy when things are actually not good. That's when you find the bargains. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio. News Talk 1010 and in studio, we have Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group, frequently featured as a leading financial expert on top business programs and publications across the country. He's helped hundreds achieve their financial goals and uh, you should give him a call today. Get your money working for you. It is the Allen Small Financial Group. His phone number 416-332-3863. 416-332-3863. You can get all his contact information at his website, 2LsAllenSmall.com. And we are back. Good morning. This is the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant, and I'm joined in studio this morning by Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group. You know, we kind of touched uh, last time on expectations, and I got a chance to point out that, that one of the special things that clients notice when they're working with you is what you like to call the Alan Small difference. And a lot of that difference, and such an integral part of that difference, is the pride you take in communicating with your clients. So tell us a little bit about the Allen Small Financial Group, Allen Small, and that all-important Allen Small difference. 
Well, uh, the Allen Small Financial Group, we are a full-service investment firm. I am senior investment advisor, so I'm the person that I guess you want to hug when things are going well, and you maybe want to give a little punch to when things are not going well. Uh, but uh, basically, our goal is to manage uh, individual portfolios, help people obtain their investment goals, their investment objectives, You know what they want their money to do for them. And the Allen Small difference is, is really uh, two main things that stick out when uh, I meet people, and that's the, as you mentioned, the constant contact with with investors, and and that's actually a two way street. And recently, I was talking to an investor, and they said to me that they they like the oppor- the, the opportunity or the chance or the be able to have the ability to contact me on a regular basis. A lot of times, you call uh, somebody and you get stuck in voicemail, and you may get a call a week later. Mm. In my case, I like to respond to my clients right away, unless I'm in a meeting or doing a radio show like this. You know, I will be in touch with. With you, uh, so it's not only me contacting, contacting them every six to eight weeks, but it's also getting back to my clients when they have questions. and And, it, and if you do have questions, you know, by all means, give me a call. And the other difference I find that really attracts people to the Allen Small Financial Group is that idea that I build portfolios from scratch to meet the needs of the individual individual investor sitting across the table from me. And uh, you know, there's no uh, prearranged portfolios. There is no cookie cutter approach. Every Everyone kind of gets the same idea or the same thing. I build portfolios to meet the needs of the person at that time for them. And I think a lot of investors like that. Uh, unfortunately for them, they, for many people, they don't get that at a lot of larger institutions. You know, they have their prearranged portfolios already set up and they slot you into, into them once they meet you. With me, it doesn't work that way. I will build you a portfolio from scratch right then and there today for you. And I think a lot of people like that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that I've been meaning to get to and we haven't, so let me take the time now to do it. And I want to talk a bit about IPOs because I'm always curious to, to understand how investors should approach them. There's been a wave of them these days. I guess the most recent being Lyft, Levi's. There's suggestions that Uber and Pinterest will be coming out soon. This will be the second one for Levi's, I believe. I mean, they, they thought it was a good idea that were maybe not. Now they're going to do it all over again. Is it is it a good idea to try and get involved at that level? Because I know one company that uh, I was involved with, they had really high expectations. I believe they, they figured they were going to get $15, $16 a share. They have yet to break five. So it's it's got there's got to be a little bit of risk there. Right? Yeah, there there is for sure, and um, I think you know IPOs are something that if you know if it's a good quality name, a name that we all know. For example, one that comes to mind that I was involved in many years ago now, I guess, was Visa. Uh, and so a name like that, I wow. think the risks are maybe a little bit less than maybe some of these names that in the tech space, for example, uh, that maybe aren't you're not so sure about as yet. So there obviously are many IPOs that come to market on a regular basis. If you're lucky enough and able to get in right on the ground floor, uh, in a lot of a lot of cases, you can make you know quite a, a bit of profit. But for many of us, for example, take the Lyft IPO that came out recently. Uh, most of us here in Canada, we couldn't gain access to shares. So what do we do? Well, we have to buy it when it starts trading on the open market. Mm. A lot of times with these names like Lyft and, and, 
and, and I would say Uber that will come out, I guess, later this year at some point. There's a lot of hype behind these names. So, you know, the IPO price is what it is, and then it starts trading 20, 30% above that right on the open. And, you know, if you're someone who wants to get in at all costs, maybe you get in at that point. I'm a little different. I kind of want to take a step back, see how everything shakes out. In the case of Lyft, well, it got into the 80s and then sold back below the initial price of 72 yeah. down into the 60s. Right. And, you know, it's been flip-flopping around, uh, you know, this past week. So I think what you want to do, at least what I try to do, especially with these new names, is take a step back, let the dust settle. Let's see how it trades the first two, three days, maybe in the first two, three weeks. Hmm. See what people are saying about what this company is going to do. And Lyft, for example, doesn't make any money right now. Obviously, they're spending a lot more than they're making. So a name like that doesn't really, it's not really profitable at this juncture. Do you want to own a name like that and pay the multiples you would be paying today to own it? And for me right now, I have to take a step back and say no. Maybe down the road, it will be a name that, that I could look at. One name actually that comes to mind was Facebook. Obviously, Facebook went public many years ago, shot up like a rocket, mm -hmm. came all the way back down to $19 a share. I'll never forget this. It was still at $19, expensive in my opinion. And then Facebook figured out out how to monetize mobile online advertising. They figured out how to make money from it. And now most of their business is all online advertising business. And so when the stock actually went up to about $26, to me, it looked cheaper than when it was actually at 19 nice. based yeah, on how much money they were now making. And that's when I actually started to buy Facebook. And look where Facebook is today, about oh, 170, almost $180 a share. So you got to really evaluate the name, know what you're buying, uh, and and maybe just if you can't get out at the IPO price, take a step back, let it trade a little bit on the on the market, and then see if you want to own it. Is there a parallel between real estate? Because as you're telling me the story, I'm thinking of the condo at Young and Bloor where people were lined up all all over the place, you know, to buy it, and it was going to be exciting. And then a few months later, and this is years ago, they said, ah, you know what, we're not going to build it anyway, and all this money had been tied up. And it just wasn't, it was so much hype. And I guess having gone through the whole tech bubble thing, I'm, I'm really gun shy about these companies that don't make money telling me how much money they're going to make eventually. Yeah. And that's, that's the risky part because you're buying it with, uh, on the future potential of the company. You're buying it thinking that one day, for example, again, using Lyft uh, or Levi's, they will grow into their valuations, mm -hmm. that Lyft will grow into its valuation. Now, Lyft is an interesting company in that they're one of two that do the, you know, the, the ride sharing and, 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 you know, and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, they have, I guess, a duopoly. And so, can they raise prices Tell down the road? I want to talk more about it if we can. Sure. Take a break and we'll come back and we'll do that. This is the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. I'm joined in studio this morning by Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group. Give him a call today. Get your money working for you. It is 416-332-3863. 416-332-3863. You can get all his contact information at his website, which is 2Ls, alansmall.com. And we're back. This is the Sunday Money Show here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. We are halfway through the show, and my guest this morning, Alan Small from the Alan Small Financial Group. And Alan, just before we get back to what we were talking about, I want to point out, I was on the website a couple of days ago. One of the things that I think you do on there that makes life a lot easier for people like me that aren't necessarily the, the world's best students of pretty much anything in the world is the YouTube videos and the time that you dedicate to those, because I really find that when I'm sitting there, 
there, watching someone speaking directly to me, and much like the podcast for this show, having the ability to pause it, go back, maybe listen back again to something I didn't completely understand, really gives me a way, way better experience than, you know, watching my eyes glaze over as I try and read an article on someone's website. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm one that likes, uh, I'm a visual kind of guy as well. And so if I can watch a video uh, versus, you know, read something uh, on a piece of paper, I, I'm much better. I retain the information a lot, a lot easier. So my YouTube videos, um, we're actually about to, to create or film uh, another three coming out, uh, I guess, in the, in the near future. And, you know, we like to choose topics that individual investors uh, have questions on. And I get my topics from my clients, from individuals that I speak to on a regular basis. And we try to address some of these, uh, you know, questions that people have, you know, that, there are a lot of questions, you know, you come about and you hear that, you know, they seem to always pop up, you know, should I pay down my mortgage or should I invest? Mm. What's better, a tax-free savings account or an RSP account? You know, these are the things you hear time and time again. And then we try to get into more specifics, uh, you know, from there. So, yeah, I think it's a great way to, to get a message across and to, to basically, I guess, show individuals or, or uh, in a video uh, how these instruments work and what the pros and cons of owning them are. We were talking about IPOs during the last segment, and it's an area that fascinates me. I was briefly involved with a company that was working with this technology. The technology was really exciting. Ended up going out for dinner with one of the head honchos at AT&T who was looking at purchasing it. And I'll never forget him saying to me, there's three stages to the technology. There's the part where people create it. There's the part where we perfect it. And there's the last part where we come in and buy it because they've worked on their, they've blown their budget working on it and trying to make it perfect. How do you know what phase the technology is at? When you're you're looking at an IPO, you're looking at Lyft, you're looking at Uber. I mean, do you have to go out there and talk to people? How do you make your recommendations on that kind of stuff? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is where the analysts come in uh, because, and this is what also makes things difficult because it's not a publicly traded company until it goes public, mm. of course. There, you know, you, the access to information can be at times difficult. And that's where the higher risk part of it comes in. But as soon as that company goes public, you get all the analyst views on it, you get all the information on it. And again, that's another reason perhaps to take a step back and but wait by that for the point, information. The, 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 you know, the ball is in the roulette wheel spinning around when you get that information information. You know, that's that's what I'm getting at is there there must take an awful lot of work on your part before the curtain rises to at least come up with an educated guess as to what direction you're going to head in, as opposed to Ian sitting at home going heads it's Uber, <laughs> tails it's Lyft. That's the best I can do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a lot of work done on these companies beforehand. You know, all their all the prospectuses and all, all the information that the company can provide because obviously they're trying to sell themselves. They're trying to sell themselves to the big investors, the pension funds, the hedge funds, Etc. These are the people that that get the most shares. Let's mm. say on the IPO, the average retail investor. Unfortunately, we get kind of pushed to the side. But you've got to do your homework. That that's key on any investment, whether it's publicly traded or it's a or whether it's a company that is going public. And, and really, when you look at a name like Lyft, as I was saying earlier, it's a duopoly. And so one of the things that they can have going for them, I think they make up about thirty percent of the market. They they are able to perhaps one day down the road maybe raise prices. And so maybe their value is extremely high right now, but if they can increase uh, earnings and if they can increase earnings to match what the price or how fast the price has gone up right. and maybe increase earnings even faster, then all of a sudden that company becomes of good value. And when will that happen? Difficult to say. 
Obviously, they have a lot of competition coming to market pretty soon. Uber is a company, obviously, that has a dominant market share. I think they're probably closer to 60% of the market. And Uber has a few different revenue streams, Uber Eats, things like that, yes. that they've managed to create. And also talking about autonomous vehicles and that whole stream of business coming down the road. But then somebody throws the, the spanner in the works and says, yeah, and Google's going to end up buying them all. And, you know, so... You must remember the Palm Pilot. Are you old? I don't know. If, I don't know if you're old. I do. I do remember it. But this was going to be one. the great <laughs> technology, and then Palm sold it to HP, and HP realized that it was just so behind where they needed to be. It faded based on the technology that was available or the technology that was right on the horizon. It's it's a fascinating world of trying to figure out where your next step should be. And I have a deep, deep respect for the people who do it, knowing that, 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 you know, you may be stepping on sand, you may be stepping on concrete, and you don't really know. And that's the risk when you buy these companies, and, and tech companies come to mind when you talk like that, because let's take Apple, for example. Apple's stock yeah. had gone up, up, <laughs> and up. It seemed like it would never stop. They kept selling more and more iPhones every quarter. Well, what happened? Well they kind of stopped selling iPhones as fast as they were the previous quarter. And all of a sudden, the analysts came out and said, uh-oh, well, can Apple still produce earnings right. at a growth, our earnings, grow their earnings at a continuous rate, 20, 30%, et cetera. So all of a sudden, the technology that was out there is no longer revolutionary. It's no longer new. It's That's no right. longer the latest thing that all our kids have to own. So then all of a sudden everybody says, well, is Apple a stock we want to own in our portfolio or should we be selling it? And for a little while there, people were selling their Apple stock. And then what happened? All of a sudden, Apple comes on with Apple TV+, Plus. they're online streaming, they're going to have content, they're going to have this, they're going to mm-hmm. have that. I think Oprah Winfrey, uh, they had uh, Reese Witherspoon on, yep. their, on their broadcast. They have all these stars talking about how great things are going to be. And then all of a sudden, everybody's happy about Apple again. The stock goes all the way up to almost $200 a share. So... I guess from our standpoint, you know, you want to study the fundamentals of a company. You want to look at, is this company uh, a one-trick pony? Can they continue to, to, to produce the earnings they need to for the stock price to continue to rise? Another name is Facebook. Look yes. how many things well, Facebook was, okay, has. Okay, and I was waiting to say that to you because I can remember one Sunday we're riding up in the elevator here and I was asking about Facebook and we were talking about managing expectations during the first segment. And as good an example of any of that was me saying, so is this it for Facebook? I mean, do you think it's really, I mean, all you, uh, all you heard was this bad news about the stocks plummeting. And, and, and look at Facebook today. You right. know, a, the stock is having a great year. I think up like 30% this year, the share price, because Facebook, no matter how much they've been in the, in the news for bad reasons, for negative reasons, for, you know, for, you know, information, allowing people to gain access to people's information, companies to gain access to personalized information. Behind the scenes, Facebook is, is just going on and on. Companies, if they want to advertise, they're using Facebook mm-hmm. or they're using Google. Yeah, you're right. That's Absolutely. where they're going to. Small businesses are using Facebook. Instagram, people are buying things through Instagram. You want to know what someone wants for Christmas? Go on to their Instagram page and find <laughs> out what they want to buy. You you're know, right. this is what, and, and what is Facebook? Facebook obviously owns the Facebook site. They own Instagram, mm-hmm. WhatsApp. They have so Oculus, which is their, uh, you know, their virtual reality part of their business. They do so many things 
that people don't even realize how many of their services or apps or, or whatnot they're using that is, are related to Facebook. Absolutely. So this is a great company, in my opinion. A lot of different revenue streams, a lot of different ways they can actually generate even more revenue down the road. And this is what, in my opinion, makes a great company and, and why some of these tech names, when you take a look at them, these are the signs or these are the indications or, 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 or signals you want to look for to buy a good quality name. We're talking about all these stuff. And I'm reminded that there must be people out there, though, that still, you know, I want to buy TD. I want to buy stable. And I mean, that's one of the conversations we had during the last show about risk, understanding what the person's idea of risk is and working with them accordingly. Right. Oh, yeah. And and banks to me, uh, Canadian banks is probably the one sector. Uh, in the market that allows me to sleep at night. Uh, a lot of portfolios of you know my clients, Torontonians, Canadians in general, I think revolve around Canadian banks. Canadian banks probably make up the core component of many portfolios, mm. many mutual Canadian mutual funds, etc. And Canadian banks, you know, you just got to look at them. Their charts always seem to go from the bottom left to the top right. They're always increasing dividends. They just a whack of them just increased dividends this past right. quarter. I think with the exception of BMO, they all increased their dividends once again. So if you're someone who's owned the bank stocks for the last 20 years, think about how many times they've increased dividends in 20 years. What would be your dividend yield just for owning the stock, let alone whether it goes up or down? You turn on your computer January 1st, and you know you're making, well, you might be making 7, 8, 10% on a Royal Bank stock. And if your target is 7 to 10% on a moderate risk investment, you're just making that just in dividends alone if you would have owned the stock for the last you know, 15 or 20 years. So this is a powerful way to invest, a powerful investment, and something, as I said, allows me and I'm sure many other Canadians to sleep at night. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio. News Talk 1010. Alan Small is in studio this morning from the Alan Small Financial Group. His office number, you'd like to reach him, 416-332-3863. At his website, all his contact information available at 2LsAllenSmall.com. We're back. This is the Sunday Money Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Ian Grant. Thank you for joining us in studio this morning. Alan Small is here from the Alan Small Financial Group. Tell you what, for anyone who's just joined us over the last 45 minutes or so, Alan, tell us a little bit about the Alan Small Financial Group, Alan Small, and that all-important Alan Small difference. So my name is Alan Small. I'm a senior investment advisor of the Alan Small Financial Group, which is part of Hollis Wealth. And uh, our goal is very simply is to help individuals obtain their financial goals through investment. And uh, you know whether your goals be saving for retirement, putting your your kids through college, university, saving for a house, uh, buying that boat you always wanted to sail off into the sunset. I like to always throw that one in there because I did have clients who, who've done that or I've had clients who have done that. Whatever those goals are, I try to help you obtain them. And for many, it's just as simple as you know, create a revenue stream so that I can pay my bills every month. And, and, that, and that, you know, is something we see quite often, especially with retirees. So whatever your goals are, we try to help you uh, accomplish them or obtain those goals. And, you know, two of the things that we like to talk about on this show is the constant contact we have with clients. We're in touch with our clients every six to eight weeks. We want them to know we're always watching. And when we meet a client for the first time, or even when we meet our, when we talk to our existing clients, you know, we create portfolios from scratch and you know, if it's new money that comes into a portfolio or a new client that comes to the Allen Small Financial Group, we're building portfolios for them at that time. We don't have a cookie cutter approach. 
coach. We don't prearrange portfolios to slot you into. Right. We build portfolios from scratch. And I think people appreciate that. We are now into April. It's hard to believe 2019. Uh, we're past the first quarter. Done. Um, much as I hate asking you to look into your crystal ball, uh, I don't mind asking you to look in the rearview mirror. What kind of quarter did we have, do you think? Well, you know what? Interesting. Our, this past quarter obviously was a very good one, one of the best. I think the best in the last 10 years. And you know, a lot of people, they say to me, were you surprised? Well, I guess I was surprised it was that good. But when you come into a quarter like we did, from the quarter we had at the end of last year, uh, it doesn't surprise me that we were higher. The bar was set extremely low. Mm. You know, so when people ask me, did you think it would, you know, the markets would be up double digits in the first quarter? Well, I turn around and say, well, did you think the market would be down 20% in the last <laughs> quarter? So I think it's only well fair. And this goes to show us time and time again uh, that the best quarters or the best months or the best days in the market tend to happen after the worst quarters, the worst months or the worst days, or maybe even the best years after the worst years. And so the market bounces back. You get this, what do they call it? FOMO, fear of missing out. When the market is giving you opportunity and everyone's piling in and buying, all of a sudden everybody gets the urge to do the same thing, that herd mentality. And that's what we saw the first quarter. And there were some positive things that drove us to the market. And I guess the two big ones being the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, and really central banks around the world said that they're going to put a, I guess, a, a halt or slow down anyways, the raising of interest rates. They're not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. They may only raise one time, if any, this coming year. And the second thing is we're hearing positive conversations from China and mm -hmm. the United States. Those are the two biggest things that have caused this market to go up significantly. Tell you what, uh, 71010, 71010, if you have any text questions, text them in, and uh, we will get to them. We don't get to them on this show. We will certainly get to them on the next. Regular texting rates apply. 71010, here we go. Alan, investment fees, I guess. Here we go. How do you determine the fees that I should be paying to an advisor? Is there one set fee? How do I judge? And that's a great question. And uh, I think everybody, a lot of advisors out there, a lot of different types of advisors, they may charge commissions in a certain way. I look at commissions in two ways. You either can pay a flat fee, like an annual fee, which for in many cases can be actually tax deductible if it's a, a fee not on a registered plan. Or you could kind of do that transactional pay-as-you-go type of mm. a fee. Uh, and also keep in mind if you are doing a pay-as-you-go and you're buying mutual funds, for example... There is that MER management fee, uh, which is part of the, the mutual fund fee as well, that you, the advisor gets a little piece of as well. So there are you know fees in, in different ways, different types of products have different fees connected with them, like mutual funds, like ETFs, for example. Some of them a little higher, some of them a little lower. But I can't stress enough, and I've said this on the show many times, at the end of the day, it's what you put in your pocket, net of fees. Mm. So if you're paying 2% on a, on a, a fee for an investment, but the portfolio or the investments making you 10, well, I think that's a trade-off everybody would take. Lots of news coverage over this past week on uh, cannabis sales here in Ontario. Uh, I'm curious, uh, was there any real impact on the market? I guess the short answer is no. I didn't uh, think so. Not really. And, and in fact, a lot of people are you know, wondering if these stocks or when these stocks will start to rise again. If you look at... The big three, which I always talk about, Canopy Growth, Aurora Cannabis, and Afria. If you look at where they've traded over the course of the last year, many of them, the highs for those stocks were back January of 2018. Canopy Growth, the highs were later last year. 
of, I think they hit about $76 a share. Now they're trading in the last time I checked in the high 50s. So for me, a lot of the people that bought into these cannabis stocks thinking that they were just going to go up, up and up again, expectation that they would continue to rise. They've been in for a rude awakening because these stocks never regain their all-time highs. Maybe they will down the road. Hopefully for these investors, they will. But for now, they seem to be just floundering around at the levels they're at. Are we surprised uh, th- there was no real reaction in speaking markets to the Mueller report? And again, I've been had, I had that question a few times this past uh, couple of weeks. I guess the answer is no, I'm not surprised because while the investigation was going on, there really wasn't an effect on the market either. I think had Mr. Mueller found a connection between the Trump campaign, between President Trump and the Russians, I think that's when the markets would have been uh, significantly affected. Uh, but because nothing was found, and it looks like it's pretty much fizzled out to a certain degree, oh, I think so the markets too, yeah. have just kind of taken it in stride. What about his threats to close the Mexican border? What kind of effect would that have here? In Canada, do you think if that if 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 that did ever come to pass? Yeah, and I think uh, you know Larry Kudlow was on uh, on TV this past week, his economic advisor, top economic advisor, and I think he was talking about. I caught a, a quick little uh, glimpse of, of the interview. He was talking about how to try and keep commerce and, and trade going, even though the borders were closed, which I didn't understand. But so they were. I guess he was basically saying they're going to close it to people, but they were going to try and let the trucks and all the different modes of transportation through. So not sure how much of an effect it would have on the United States and therefore on us here in Canada if they were to close the border. I can't believe it would be a good thing. It would obviously cause some uncertainty, and uncertainty is never good for the market. But having said that, the market really hasn't flinched much since uh, since the president has made those comments. We mentioned Apple during the last segment. I'm just curious, um, any thoughts on Apple's entry into the financial world is announcing that they're going to have their own credit card. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's great. I, you know, a lot of I've heard some people talk about how Goldman Sachs, who is teaming up with Apple on the credit card deal, is going to benefit from this long term. And I think again, as we talked about earlier, Apple. You know, what do we know Apple for? We know it for the iPad and the and the iPod, or once upon a time, the iPod and the iPhone and all that, and the iMac, right. you know, your Mac. But now we're going to talk about them, credit card, talking about, you know, streaming, TV, content. This is how a company, in my opinion, a great company, continues to to do well and thrive in an ever-changing, ever-changing world. They got to find ways to continue to push the envelope and find new ways to make money. And the credit card or the card is just another way. I'll never forget a, a bunch of years ago watching a guy on TV. And he said, if you ever want to buy airplane stock, wait till the crash, buy the stock then, because that's when you're going to get a good deal. And I remember that thing. Oh, my God. How could he say that out loud? I'm, the, I'm tying this into the whole Boeing 767 fiasco, this this inability to get the software in that they apparently needed to get in a couple of weeks ago. Uh, planes grounded all over the place. Do you think that's going to have a long-term effect or from a completely morbid, and I get it, probably not the nicest thing I'm ever going to suggest in the world place to be, is this the time to buy that Boeing stock? And you bring up a fantastic point. Obviously, again, you know, looking at what you're saying, you want to buy low and eventually sell high. And how do you buy low? Well, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a, a crisis, in this case, a horrible crisis, for, for you to be able to buy a stock like Boeing, which has been fantastic, a great performer. I think it's still up 30% for the year in terms of share price, uh, even with this catastrophe. Uh, but Boeing, I look at Boeing really in two ways. And A person like me is actually a little bit surprised that the stock hasn't fallen further because I look at it from the negative side that 
how many lawsuits could come from what's happening? You know, could airlines sue Boeing because obviously now they don't have planes in the air. They had to make alternative arrangements to get people elsewhere. And how much yep. money did that cost them, uh, et cetera? The, you could look at uh, airports perhaps suing them. And not to mention all the families of all the people that perished in those crashes. Yes. If it is proven that it was faulty software or faulty airplane, then perhaps Boeing could be on the hook. So I've been very cautious to buy Boeing at a cheap price, but the stock really hasn't fallen that yeah, much. much. And and hearing a few people analysts over the past few days, I've learned that it seems Boeing as a stock seems to be trading on production. And Boeing is one of two main companies in the world, them and Airbus, that make planes of that size. And so we know Airbus is so backlogged that if you're China, for example, and you need a you know a fleet of 30 planes, you know, and you go to Airbus, they're going to say, okay, we'll get it to you. We'll get it to you in the next 15 years. <laughs> yeah. But if you're, you know, or you can go to Boeing and yeah. say, you know, figure this thing out, get me 30 planes and Boeing's going to be able to do it. So I think Boeing is in that sweet spot where if their production levels were to all of a sudden be cut, I think that's when you see the stock price really fall. But if they maintain their production levels going forward and their estimations and their targets going forward uh, will stay the same, I think the stock actually will bounce back over time. I've always been a fan of Boeing. I'll never forget one of their bumpers. It was, an, it was actually a business travel thing. It was not Boeing, comma, not going. And I'm completely <laughs> online with that. You got 30 seconds. Tell us uh, as we wrap up a bit about the Allen Small Financial Group. Again, Alan Small, uh, I'm the Senior Investment Advisor at the Alan Small Financial Group, which is part of Hollis Wealth. And I meet a lot of people on a regular basis, and I tell them very simply, I'm here to help you. If I can be of help to you as the investor, I will try to do so. And uh, take a look at you know investors' portfolios on a regular basis, provide second opinions. Uh, you know, Our goal is to help you obtain your investment objectives in the most efficient way possible, and that's what we do every day. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. It's been a great hour. Thank you for joining us here on the Sunday Money Show. If you'd like to reach Alan, his office number, 416-332-3863. All his contact information on his website, 2Ls, alansmall.com. I'm Ian Grant, back at 1 o'clock this afternoon with Howard Levitt and Employment Law. So join us then here on News Talk 1010.